In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing the show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And we have a super exciting show for you all today. We are going to talk about the midterm election and discuss some of our final arguments as we lead up to it and also give some final analysis about what we think will happen or how we have no idea what will happen because <laughs> it's, it's completely up in the air. Uh, then we're going to talk about Liz Truss. Who is that, you might ask? Well, that right there is the only British prime minister to lose to a head of lettuce. And you'll understand <laughs> what I mean a little bit later. And then we're going to have a discussion about why Americans can't seem to comprehend the idea that we might be able to learn from other countries. Ourselves so, included, I will say. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Super excited. Yeah. Before we get started, we'd just like to give a huge shout out to our good friends, uh, Debbie and Jerry, over at It's Another Sunday Podcast uh, for 100 episodes. Mm -hmm. And for their 100th episode, they had Michael and I on it, and we got to talk about podcasting, and it was a lot of fun. So uh, head over there and give them some love. Yeah, absolutely. We also want to talk about another huge milestone on the show. Yes. So you may or may not know, uh, we've recently started publishing YouTube videos of our segments. So if you're ever interested in a segment uh, and you just want to listen to that one or you want to share it with someone, you can always go to our YouTube. Um, you can just search the Perspectrum on YouTube. Um, but since we've started to do this, we've gotten some traction on YouTube, including one of the most important milestones for any YouTube content producer trolls <laughs> so we wanted to give some air to our favorite trolley comments from our most recent uh uploads of our youtube videos so yeah. nathan what is one of your favorites oh my favorite and we're not going to say names because you know yeah we don't, don't want to elevate draw attention to the trolls just how just how fun they are it's so yeah. fun this is like yeah. a, such a point of pride <laughs> yeah so one said um this was in response to our hershia walker video our last hershia walker video um d-bag equals two youtube losers speaking to you right now they will teabag each other afterwards sick <laughs> <laughs> i wonder if the sick was like sick as in that's cool yeah. or like sick well, maybe, as in, maybe that's they're not sick. a troll that's then. gross maybe they're not a troll yeah. i i just i just i just want to make a Important clarification, though. All right. Michael and I do not teabag each other after we record. I mean, after you no. record, it's just, it's just so, you're so tired. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, yeah. you just don't want to have any major physical activity. So we teabag each other before we start recording. Exactly. I've, I, it's personally offensive that they don't think that I teabag myself. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> so, What's, so my, what about yours, Michael? M my favorite one is, quote, you can see the estrogen seeping out of these soy boys. <laughs> that one's actually creative. I think like, that, that's like why I soy, like it. Soy, soy generates estrogen, right? Or like it has. Well, it, it's a molecule, I believe, that's similar to estrogen, and so yeah. it can sometimes cause like, yeah, like yeah. So that one's actually kind of creative. I know, very creative. Now, yeah. of course, it's like this demonization of like yeah. soy and like estrogen and like yeah. womanhood and. You know, all that stuff. It's yeah. not good, yeah. <laughs> but it's very creative. 
Uh, you know what's not creative, though, Michael? What's that? The COVID numbers. Oh, that's true. They're pretty much bad every week. Mm. So switch it up, COVID. Come on. <laughs> so <laughs> worldwide, we've hit 634 million total cases with average daily new cases of 352,000 uh, over the last seven days. So that's compared to 413,000 average new cases per day, or down 15% from the week before. In terms of death, worldwide, we've hit 6.59 million deaths, with, with average daily new deaths over the last seven days of 1,173, up 5% from 1,114 the week before. In terms of worldwide vaccinations, we've hit 68.4% of the population with one dose and 63.1% with, with two doses, each up just about a tenth of a percent from the week before. In the U.S., we've hit a total of 99.2 million total cases um, with average daily new cases of 27,000, which is actually up 4% from 26,000 the week before. In terms of total deaths, we've hit 1.094 million, with average daily deaths over the last seven days of 199, which is flat from the week before. And in terms of vaccination in the U.S., we have 79.8% of the U.S. population with at least one dose, and 68.3% with that second dose of the vaccine. How about that? Yeah. But you know what's not just the same as last week and just kind of a little bit boring, like the COVID numbers? What, Michael? God damn it, it's the midterms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the midterms aren't like they were last week. Or last month. Or last they're all it's all over the fucking place. It's all over the place. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to y'all. It's not looking good right now. Yeah. It's really not looking good. So we're about um, two weeks away from election night. A number of states have already started early voting. Um but you know, we can't like count any of those ballots, so we won't know any of the even preliminary or already cast results until after election day. Yeah. But, but yeah, it, it does look good. it does seem to be a general tendency that early voting is primarily Democrats, hmm. or at least is mostly Democrats, and uh the voting on election day is mostly Republicans. At least that's been the tendency in the last in the last election. That was the tendency in the last election. And I mean, maybe it is good news that there are there are a record number of early voting. There there is a record number of early voting. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's promising. But as it stands, overall polls are uh not great. They're not, not great. great for Democrats. Yeah. Um the uh the five thirty eight average currently has uh Republicans ahead by uh 0.6 points uh after the democrats ballot. had been had been ahead for for quite a while actually yeah for a few weeks for a few weeks um that being said you know i say that but then i look at the uh last five polls um a big village poll has democrats up by four points a big another one has them up by four points a uh, echelon insights has them up by two points and echelon and other echelon insights has Democrats up by three points. Hmm. And is this all of the generic ballot, or is this production of uh, of election outcomes? Uh, this is uh, this is generic ballot for for Congress specifically. Gotcha. Yep. So yep. basically, like who, wh which party would you support 
in the yeah. uh, in the election for for controlling Congress. And the thing is, the the other thing to recognize is that because of gerrymandering, in order for Democrats to keep control of the House, they can't just win. They have mm-hmm. to win by probably several points. Yeah, and uh, that's, I mean, based on that average. That's not looking super likely. Mm-hmm. Now, to be clear, everything could change. Yeah. Oftentimes, like polling data is often always set up to account for what happened in the last election. Mm-hmm. And that means that it can always be off by a little bit, which means that if it's really close, it could very easily be like a, a an almost like a five point margin of error. Mm-hmm. So it's very possible that the Republicans could end up winning by like five points or the Democrats could end up winning by five points. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen, especially in the house. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially in the house, one thing that makes like the generic ballot more representative for the house is, you know, a couple things. One, all the house seats are up for grabs. Um, so yeah. that's, that's key. Uh, two, they're, you know, house seats are proportioned, according to population. So we've got like kind of a representative thing there. Um, so, but we're on the Senate side, like we only, we, there's like a few things that are kind of coming together to make it more likely that Democrats will overperform, uh, their national average polling on the Senate side. Um, but still 538 has a pretty much a dead heat between Democrats and Republicans with predicted 52% chance that Democrats would control the Senate and a 48% chance that Republicans would control it. And that's yeah. with the fact that 21 Republican seats are up versus only 14 Democratic seats. Yeah. So, yeah. And so basically, like, there's like an 80% chance that Democrats will hold between 47 and 53 seats in the Senate by the time this is all done. So yeah. really, like, whichever party wins, like, two of the three, like, closest Senate races will control the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. And uh some of those races have tightened up a little bit. Um way too many of them. It's driving me fucking nuts. Yeah. Pennsylvania's tightened up a little bit, although I I I can't see Dr. Oz winning in Pennsylvania. I just yeah. I do not see that happening. Yeah. Um Georgia's definitely tightened up. Mm-hmm. Um however, in terms of average polling, uh Warnock is still up by two points mm-hmm. in Georgia. So yeah. that's that is still important context. Yeah, and as you alluded to, like we saw kind of a peak of expected democratic performance especially in the Senate um in like the September f- time frame. You know, a baseline prediction for a midterm election as we've told our audience before is that the party in power would lose seats. This has yeah. happened like pretty much every election since like the 1940s or every midterm election anyway. And this time, like it looked like there was going to be a pretty significant uh, Democratic upset, uh, where we probably wouldn't control the House. There's pretty much been, you know, no point at which it looked like Democrats were going to win the House, um, but we would control. We would have like a higher chance of controlling the Senate, never by too many seats, but usually a more a more likely polling that we that we would control the Senate, and that's based on the the polling from each of those Senate seats that are up for grabs and the likelihood that the Democratic would Democratic candidate would win that seat. But what we've seen since September is like a general decline in Democrats' popularity. And as Nathan mentioned, in each of these key states, 
a decline in the the outlook for the Democratic candidate. So we saw that at their peak, 538 predicted that Democrats had a 71% chance of controlling the Senate. And now the expectation is, as I mentioned, that 52% chance. Um, And to Nathan's point, like in Georgia, we saw that Warnock at like the peak had like a 20% chance lead above uh, Walker. And that has kind of, that has declined to just a couple of points at this point. And, and and that's despite like Walker getting like a couple of scandals, like more unpopular. Yeah. But we see this dri- I think we're seeing this driving force of like the salience of like issues that are kind of weak for Democrats getting the front seat. Yeah. Yeah. Which at this point, the weakest issue for Democrats. And again, I'm not saying that this is because of reality. I'm saying this is perception. <laughs> the weakest point is inflation. Yeah. All right. Democrats are much more likely to be blamed for current inflation. And honestly, that's just, that's often just the nature of the economy. Yeah. Uh, Inflation is one of the easiest things for the everyday person to be able to see. Mm -hmm. And the everyday person is probably not going to think through the nuances and the intricacies of, well, you know, there was a supply chain and then there was a war in, there was a war in Ukraine where we cut off our trade with Russia and then OPEC cut their, uh, you know, uh, uh, cut their supply of, of, of fossil fuels to the world. Like they're probably not thinking through that. They're probably seeing the, the, the number on the gas station, the face in the white house, Biden's face in the white house, the D next to his name and think, Oh, well, I guess that's, that's why this is happening. Yeah. And important to our last segment, one thing they're probably not comparing is U.S. inflation to international inflation, which is one of the strongest points against pointing towards uh, the Democrats as being the driving force behind that inflation. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I won't say that in terms of inflation that the United States is performing significantly better than most countries. Uh, oh, uh, Biden made that point in a in a speech recently, and it's not entirely true, um, but it's definitely better than several other countries. I yeah. mean, looking at the United States as it stands, uh, the United States inflation rate is uh, 8.5%. <laughs> now, compare that to the, to the United Kingdom, 10.1%. Which, well, we'll to get fair, to what's like, fucking them over in a minute. <laughs> to be fair, we'll, yeah, we'll, 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 get, we'll get to what's fucking them over because, I mean— you know, you you also compare gas prices. Uh, the price of natural gas in the United States is up thirty point five percent. Regular gasoline is up forty four point six percent. In the UK, um, natural gas prices rose by ninety five point seven percent. So oh, shit's man. happening. Um, Canada uh, inflation rose by seven point six percent. So we're we're about on par with them. Uh, yeah. China, it only rose by 2.7%. In Japan, mm. 2.6%. Um, in Turkey, inflation jumped uh, 79.6%. Mm. So we're definitely doing better than Turkey. Yeah. Um, Australia, 6.1%. Uh, South Africa, uh, 7.8%. Israel, uh, 5.2%. So I would say that I, I would probably put the United States in the middle in terms mm. of how much inflation has actually risen. Yeah. Which doesn't, which again, doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing better, but it also means that the rest of the world is either in the same boat, slightly better or a lot worse. Yeah. And we've talked about inflation in the past and some of the driving forces behind it. You know, you might argue that 
some degree it's like uh it was like federal support for uh you know in the form of like covid relief you know obviously republicans took those actions as well democrats you know did that last bill um so people can argue like the effect of that that effect is clearly a an incredibly minor effect it's yeah. not it's not the driving force yeah exactly and and part of the reason why it's clearly not the driving force is that international point so even places yeah. that didn't do as significant um you know support for uh like economic support like they still are seeing inflation like i wonder what the commonality is among like the whole in like the whole world in seeing inflation hmm maybe it's the fucking international pandemic yeah. um no, yeah. and and or the other the war thing in Russia Ukraine, yeah, or both. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing that's going against the the story about it being just everybody being flush with cash is that we've like significantly increased interest rates, right? Like the Fed has taken the actions that the Fed should take. Has been really zealous about it. Increased interest rates more than like like any time in recent memory, and it's not curbing inflation already right like it's not significantly changing inflation if it were about the money supply in the economy that would have a much larger impact yeah so it's much more likely that it is about the supply side and reducing and like just having less stuff available and just and you know congress can do some stuff for that maybe but not much like they yeah. might, maybe they could like lower standards, right? They could like <laughs> make it easier for people to transport goods using like, you know, with fewer checks or like less, <laughs> or like yeah. with less fuel standards or something like that. But like, there's not that much that Congress or the president can do to affect yeah. that supply side in the short term. Yeah. But again, it's difficult to see those nuances when all you're seeing are gas prices creeping up. Exactly. And the thing is, we saw. The polling was best for Democrats when inflation was on a steady decrease and when Democrats were racking up victories left and right, Mm -hmm. all right? When Democrats were forgiving student debt, when Democrats were uh, passing the Inflation Reduction Act, when Democrats were passing the CHIPS Act, when Democrats were um, uh, passing the PAC Act, we saw poll numbers go up. Now, I feel like when that happened, Democrats kind of had this attitude of, all right, well, That's we've good. done enough. Let's run on that yeah. and, and stick with it. And yes, you should run on that. You should keep running on that. But I mean, I just I, I, I think that it was a bad idea to just stop right there hmm. because what ended up happening was the thing with OPEC, gas prices started creeping up and predictably poll numbers for Republicans started going up. Yeah. Poll numbers for Democrats started going down. Approval rating for Joe Biden started going down. So we can't be at the whims of, of gas prices like this all the time, yeah. which also means that the Democrats really should have spent some time focusing on like addressing the root of the problem, which is the fossil fuel industry. Mm. It's fossil fuels. All right. If we could get off this dependence on fossil fuels, then we wouldn't be at the whim of gas prices every single goddamn time there's there's any economic problem. Yeah. All right. We wouldn't be we wouldn't be freaking out about being able to fill up our car every time there's any 
any type of inflation or any type of any type of conflict that between a country that has gas or when another country decides they're going to cut the amount of oil that they spent that they send to us mm-hmm. all right there is a major economic advantage to arguing for renewable energy and yeah. that is that is a democrat issue all right that is a democrat issue that is popular so yeah. if you really if you really wanted to make a solid response against the Republicans, against the Republican accusations about gas prices, you can say, all right, yes, we can try to pass laws or try to, um, you know, maybe pass laws about price gouging, which, by the way, Republicans all voted against. Uh, we can try to pass laws in order to uh, to to increase the supply or we can we can re- release uh, federal oil reserves. But at the end of the day. The root of the problem is there are, that our economy is way too dependent on fossil fuels in order to function properly. And that should be the primary focus. All right. Make the argument that was one of our major focuses in the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, and, uh, and you can also make the argument that's not just about trying to reduce this inflation. That's about trying to reduce future inflation, which, by the way, Kevin McCarthy He's saying he wants to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act. Hmm. All right. He wants to prevent us from taking steps to get off of fossil fuels that basically control our economy. All right. We're going to pass more legislation. We're going to take further steps towards that goal of getting us off of this. That's the argument. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Like, we had some good early wins and, and importantly, like the Dobbs decision in in my view, like really undermined yeah. the Republicans like like potential lead. And it it put them in the position of legislating have like by being even the party in the minority, they were like taking they basically asserting these huge policy this huge policy priority despite not having control in Congress. So I think that like did us some favors, but to your point, like I think we failed to sustain. And I think part of that is like the the Republicans really are, I think, winning the argument on the economy, like, and they're increasing the salience of these issues where they tend to be more favored. Yeah. Certainly by by swing voters. So like the economy and like crime has increased in salience. Like they've effectively made that kind of a central issue, which is like, you know, yes, there's been an increase in crime. It started under the Trump administration. It's pretty clearly linked to the pandemic. And it's also like, you know. It's also worse in Republican areas. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, and, and that's a, like the federal government really does not have yeah. that big of an impact on crime rate. Exactly. And, you know, we've, we've talked about this before. The crime rate is pretty similar, if not even worse, in a lot of Republican areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so so it's just it's just it's a completely it's a completely ridiculous idea. It's a completely ridiculous argument that Democrats have not been doing a good job of debunking. Yeah. I think and I think that's like a real uniting theme. Like there's something about like I think I think Democrats are just not nearly as on the attack yeah. on these key things as they should yeah. be and Democrat and and Republicans have an, who have a natural advantage because they don't hold the clear reins of power on these issues are able to like go on the offensive on those things. And like, the thing is like, I think what's really interesting about these cases, especially in the Senate, is it's so clear that all of this is being driven by the national conversation. 
rather than the specifics of these races. Like like in Pennsylvania with Fetterman versus Oz, like like people like pundits are talking about, well, Fetterman had this stroke back in May, and so like maybe like people are losing confidence in him. And it's like, uh, guys, his polling maxed out in September at an eighty-three percent lead over us, hmm. but it's declined since September to a, a 59% lead uh, with in, terms of li- in terms of likelihood of winning. Yeah, exactly. Based on 538. And so it's like, guys, like, no, it's not the stroke. It's the national conversation. Same thing, like, even in places where we're not predicted to win, like Ohio, where, so 538 um, has a, has J.D. Vance, the, the Republican candidate, with a 76% chance of winning at this point versus Tim Ryan's 24% chance, right? Tim Ryan's not going to win that race. Hmm. But even that race where we're losing has declined, right? Tim Ryan is going to lose by more <laughs> or has a, le- a worse chance than he did at the peak in yeah. September. Yeah. It is these national conversations. The same thing with Mark Kelly, a popular candidate running against a like self-proclaimed nationalist, right? Yeah. Kelly has a 69% chance of winning according to 538 at this point, down from an 83% chance in September. Yeah. Like like Democrats have to be united on fighting these national conversations or we're losing the issue the 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 war on these issues that really matter to swing voters. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned something uh, that I want to correct myself on in a previous podcast. Last time we did our podcast, we did our midterm predictions. Um, things were actually looking pretty good for uh, Tim Ryan in Ohio. Mm. Um, I'm going to go ahead and change my prediction and say, <laughs> and say he's going to lose that. Uh, I do think it's actually, I think it might be relatively close, but like, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and s- change that prediction. But I'm going to keep all my other predictions, mm-hmm. all right? Which, yeah. to remind you, my prediction in terms of the more competitive races, I think Wisconsin is going to be won by the Republican. Uh, I think that Arizona is going to be won by the Democrat. I think Pennsylvania is going to be won by the Democrat. I do actually think that in the end, uh, in Georgia, I do think Warnock's going to win, probably mm-hmm. by only a little bit. But I think yeah. he, I, I, I do think he's going to end up winning. Yeah. Um, I just think it's then, a losing argument for Walker to say that he's more godly than the preacher. But yeah. like that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, and Nevada, this was the one that you and I disagreed on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still going to maintain. I think it. I think the Democrats going to win. My my. Right, I yeah. do think that the final breakdown is going to be 51 to 49. That being said, that means that we don't override Joe Manchin and Cinema. Yeah. And that yeah. right there, I think, was one of the biggest the, one of the biggest mistakes that I think Democrats made was that they didn't make the race a competition against both the Republicans and those two. Hmm. All right. Because here's the thing. The argument that they were making of elect us and we'll do all this stuff, it feels disingenuous yeah, to the people. Yeah, it falls on deaf ears, yeah. It, it, it feels disingenuous to the people that felt betrayed when they worked so hard to try to get Democrats in charge of all three Parts of parts of government, the, the the House, the Senate, and the White House, and so many things got blocked. Mm-hmm. All right, so many important things got blocked. There were some okay things that got passed, but uh, you weren't able to codify Roe versus Wade because of those those two pieces of shit. Yeah, um, you weren't able to codify marriage equality 
you weren't able to pass the Build Back Better plan. The Inflation Reduction Act was an extremely watered-down version of that. Uh, you completely abandoned a public option. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I don't even know what happened with a public option. <laughs> like, that was one. Yeah, of your... it, like was immediately turned off. It was like it was like they were like like closing up the campaign shop after Biden was elected, turning off the lights, and they're like, yeah, might as well just throw this public option in the trash on the way out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, and I, I. I feel like that's something that you could pretty easily make an argument for reconciliation with, but you didn't even try. Yeah. You didn't even fucking try to pass it. And healthcare was one of the biggest issues in the Democratic primary. Mm -hmm. You were arguing, Joe Biden was arguing about how star-spangled awesome a public option would be, Mm -hmm. and then he fucking dropped it. Yeah. Like healthcare is one of the biggest issues in this country, and you it's and it's an issue that that Democrats are viewed much more favorably on. Yep. And you fucking dropped it. Yeah. What the hell is the logic there? I think that's such a strong point. For those who don't know, uh, Mansion and Cinema are not up for re-election, or you know they're not they're not up in this election, right? So they're not on the table. But to be able to say, Nathan, to your point, to be able to say, we were blocked by conservative members of our party. The only way, we still can deliver all of these things you want. What we need is the Senate. Yeah. Now, Biden has said, like, give us two more senators. Like, he has said that to his credit. And in fact, I think that Biden himself has probably done a better job than any of the that than than most of the democratic leadership in in congress has in terms mm-hmm. of campaigning but that had to, that main focus of the message had to be like these two are blocking us yeah all right give us give us those two more seats and we can override these people because we're running against the republican party and the republican party has two additional members in democratic clothing yeah they're the enemies they're the reason why we can't pass abortion. They're the reason why we couldn't pass build, build back better. Um, you know, fucking cinema is the reason why we had to, to take out a fucking, uh, closing of a tax loophole for hedge fund managers. (laughs) Like these two are corrupt pieces of shit and we need to override their power. Now, why didn't they make that argument? Well, the simple reason is, that there are plenty of other Democrats that are in Congress that might not be as corrupt, but are still corrupt in very similar ways. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So with all of that being said, it might feel like we're saying that there is no difference between Democrats and Republicans or that like the Democrats are completely useless or there would be no advantage to Democrats maintaining control of Congress. That is not what we're saying. And in fact, I do just want to make the argument that there are still things that Democrats can do. Mm-hmm. Now, there are things that in order to make them do it, we need to, you know, we need to be activists. All right. We had to bully Biden into the student loan forgiveness. All right. We had to poll numbers kind of forced Biden's hand in passing something with the Inflation Reduction Act. And, and and Schumer with 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 the, the 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 maneuver that he did. All right. So we do still have to push them into doing the right thing if we do end up 
allowing Democrats to maintain control of Congress. Yeah. But that's never going to happen with Republicans. Yeah. Right? Republicans take one chamber of Congress and all hopes for any type of progress whatsoever is done for the next two years. Yeah. All right. Nothing is going to improve. There In will fact, be no legislative change that that will actually make that will actually make a huge difference in the next two years. Yeah. In fact, it's probably even worse than that. So, like, you know, when I think about the House, I'm like, well, you know, there's an eighty percent chance the Democrats lose the House according to five thirty eight at this point. That sucks. They only need to pick up five seats on net to control the House. That sucks. Um, yeah. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Hopefully the polls are wrong. Ho- like we still have to get out and vote, and that's the thing that all of us can do. And that's and like canvas and you know advocate and tell your friends to vote and all that stuff. But at the same time, I was thinking like, well, you know, like we have both chambers today, and there's no way they're going to get a veto-proof majority, right? So, you know, what are they really going to be able to do if they ho- if they hold the chamber? Is that if they hold the house? Is that really a problem? Even if they hold the house and the Senate, they can't override a veto. So it's not like they can do really bad stuff. Like progress stops, but it's not like they can really like hurt us, except for something really important. One thing that even if they just hold the house, will be like really difficult, and that's the fact that the Democrats care about running the country yeah. and Republicans like elected Republicans by and large don't. So bills to fund the government, to raise the debt ceiling, mm, to yes. deal with military issues and just to keep the government functioning will become very fraught. And the fact yeah. that we know that from past experience, the Democrats are dedicated to keeping the government open and not defaulting on our debt and causing an international economic crisis um, means that, and the, the Republicans know this too, means that they will use those bills to pass stuff. Yeah. Maybe not everything, maybe not stuff that's that crazy, but they will do harm through that process, even if they just control one chamber. And worst case scenario, maybe they'll win over Kirsten Cinema or Joe Manchin in the, in the Senate or more conservative people and like pass some hopefully not too heinous stuff. But like ultimately... Even if they control one chamber, they can still pass stuff. They can still like negotiate and they still have leverage. So we need to do everything we can to prevent that. Even though it seems pretty likely that they're going to take the house, we just have to really push to, to try to prevent that. And now it's time for a more lighthearted segment, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good every week? Well, Michael... We do tips for good every week because down on the corner, out there in the street, Willie and the poor boys are playing. Bring a nickel. Tap your feet. Hmm. Back when a nickel actually meant something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea what that is. What is that? Down on the corner. The is song, song Down on the Corner. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a great man. song. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an older song. Before. Hmm. Yeah, it's um So it's about it's about gambling. It's, it's public credence. gambling. It's credence. Oh. Yeah, uh, never listen to credence. <laughs> no, no, it's like me. it's like literally it's like uh the, like a bunch of 
dudes playing a playing like a street band and hmm. it's like you know come on bring a nickel give them some money and like just just play along and like tap your feet hmm. you know and you know what makes the world a better place what a bunch of dudes playing a string band yes so maybe yes, we should just skip absolutely. to that let's skip to that all right so what is our tip for good this week michael our tip for good is apply for federal student loan debt relief the yes. site is live Go to studentaid.gov. You can apply. It takes like five minutes. It requires very little information. You can probably do it from memory. It's like very, very, very easy. And once you apply, you can expect your relief within about four to six weeks, according to the website. And yeah, and and like even if, you know, I think early on they they said like as long as you had like your income information like available to, uh, you know, available for them to access, like they would just you know, provide you with the relief, go ahead and apply. It takes no time. It'll make sure that you get the relief as soon as possible. And uh, it's very, very, very easy. So studentaid.gov and apply for your federal student aid relief. And do it before Republicans try to block it. Because mm. <laughs> they're going to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's Tips for Good. So for our next segment, we're talking about produce. Oh, wait. Sorry, we're talking about... <laughs> Sorry, we're talking about something that doesn't last as long as produce. As produce, exactly. And that's Liz Truss. So, <laughs> so just under two months ago, Liz Truss was elected to replace a previous prime minister in the UK, Boris Johnson, as the new UK prime minister. Boris Johnson was ousted as the leader of UK's Conservative Party, uh, and therefore the leader of the government due to like some po like political scandals, including like throwing parties during COVID while the rest of the country was locked down. Um, and they finally got rid of that dude um, and then immediately replaced him with someone way worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and she Which, holds... I didn't know how much worse you could get than Boris Johnson, but me neither. But I, I must have been sorely lacking in imagination. I think you're right. I think we might just assume the UK just is a little bit more tempered than we are. But yeah. this uh, really goes against that. Yeah, it does. And she, does. so she, she holds the dubious title of having the shortest uh, time in office as a prime minister in UK history. Yeah, and and they've had like. A, a parliament for a really long time. They've had prime ministers for a really long, like, like we think the U S is old. Yeah, exactly. Like 300 years, the same government. Like that's, that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so in 300 years, she has the shortest reign of just 45 days. Yeah. And you might wonder, like, if, if you haven't been paying attention, you might wonder like, Hey, like how did this happen? 45 days. Did she get sick? Well, no, it turns out her policies were just so disastrous that they caused an economic crisis in under two months. And she killed the queen. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't actually kill the queen. <laughs> just so you deserve know. It was <laughs> just clear. coincidental. The queen, yes. you know, one of the last yeah. acts of the queen well, was to what, interact with her. What's funny was like, I actually, uh, to be honest, I kind of felt sorry for her at first. Mm. Because like she becomes prime minister, and then immediately after that, the queen dies, mm -hmm. and I'm and I was just thinking, man, that's got to be embarrassing. But again, if I thought that was going to be the most embarrassing thing, I I was sorely lacking in imagination. Yeah. yeah, her. We'll get into the specifics of her economic policies, but she fucked up so badly. Her approval rating in Britain, her approval rating, 
is on par with Vladimir fucking Putin. Hmm. Well, I mean, that's got to be pretty good, right? Vladimir Putin runs an authoritarian dictatorship. People don't really speak out against him. Like, you know, his approval rating is probably pretty high. Michael, Michael, Michael. I'm not talking about her approval rating in the UK is comparable to his in Russia. I'm talking about her approval rating in the UK (laughs) is comparable to Putin's approval rating (laughs) in the UK. (laughs) Oh, my God. So Uh, that is people are as likely to elect her as prime minister as they would be to elect Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Yeah. She has a 10% approval rating, according to YouGov, a 10% approval rating in the UK. Compare that to the YouGov average for Vladimir Putin, which is 9%. So she's beating him by 1%. Wow. Which I guess in the words of Dominic Toretto... Winning is winning. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that is... So, okay, so how on earth in just 45 days did someone who won an election ruin everything so much that she is now as popular as someone caught, like, contributing to an economic crisis via, like, energy costs and literally, like like significantly hurting the UK. Yeah. It's by creating an economic crisis and significantly hurting the UK. <laughs> so, okay, so background. Yeah. So the Conservative Party controls the government. So Liz Truss did not have to go through a general election. Yeah. All she had to do was appeal to about 150,000 or so members of the Conservative Party. So, think of a primary what happens when the only people you have to appeal to are members of your own party? Yeah. You go fucking ham. Yeah. Right? And But unlike a primary, where which is followed by a general election, where you have to tamp down your rhetoric and actually get elected, generally speaking, yeah. she didn't have to take a softer approach. Yeah. And so she like built herself as like the 21st century Margaret Thatcher and ran on all of these tax cuts, and then her fail mistake was actually trying to implement them. Yeah. Now, I think that we should probably explain really quickly how parliamentary how parliamentary system works. Good idea. Because a lot of you are probably confused about, wait, 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 but if she didn't go through an election, like a general election, how did she get elected? So a parliamentary system is a little bit different. All right? The, the prime minister, who is the head of the government, is not directly elected by the people. All right. Usually what happens is there is a general election in which they elect MPs, right? Those are basically members of the House of Commons, which the House of Commons is the lower house of Britain, which is the house that actually has any power because you have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. The House of Lords is basically ceremonial. I'm giving way too much information that you don't need. (laughs) The important thing is, think of it almost like if the Speaker of the House of Representatives in the United States... Uh, was the president, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of like that. Now, the way that they think of politics in a parliamentary system is also often different. Um, Usually when people are voting in the United Kingdom, they're not thinking, oh, I'm voting for this specific MP, Mm -hmm. all right? I'm voting for the prime minister who is a member of this specific party. So most of the time, you're not voting for that representative, you're voting for a party, all right? So because of that... The election is more so about which party controls parliament. 
which means that the head of the party that controls the parliament is the prime minister. All right. So the reason why Liz Truss won without having like any type of general election is specifically because she became the leader of the conservative party, which is also mm-hmm. known as the Tories. They're also known as the Tories. You, you might hear me refer to them as that in this. Um, and, and that brought her into being the prime minister. Mm-hmm. But of course, when the prime minister is failing, when the prime minister is doing terribly, it reflects badly on the Tories. It reflects badly on the party that's in power. So naturally, they have a vested interest in making sure that the person that they choose, the person that they put forth, is not fucking up with their poll numbers. So yeah. what that means is they can actually have what's called a vote of no confidence in order to oust prime ministers, which is kind of like impeachment, except you don't have to break the law in order to do it. All right. It's just if a certain amount of people in parliament decide, nope, you suck, like you're out. Hmm. Um, but importantly to, to understanding that, that vote of no confidence, um, usually before that happens, there's a resignation. All right. And that's yeah. basically what happened here. There was going to be if 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 Liz Truss had not resigned, there would have almost certainly been a vote of no confidence and she would have been forced out. Yep. Totally. So let's talk a little bit about what she ran on and what she implemented. Yeah. And how fucking disastrous that was. So And also how we what we can learn from it. Yeah. I think that's a key part of this. And it kind of leads into our third segment too. Yeah, it um, does. <laughs> so she ran on cutting taxes, right? Britain is facing, similar to the U.S., they're facing rising inflation, a potential impending recession. They may already be in one. They're facing rising energy costs due to the war in Ukraine and sanctions against Russia. And just generally speaking, like, things are pretty tough right right now. And so you might think that cutting taxes for the poor or for struggling people makes sense from a populist perspective during a recession, right? People are struggling to pay for things. If you cut their taxes, they'll have more money in their pockets. Great. Two problems with that. (laughs) (laughs) One, um, it doesn't actually make very much sense from an economic perspective when inflation is driven by supply side, by the the supply chain, right? So like similar to the US and, and all over the world, inflation is being primarily driven by the fact that goods are not flowing like at full throttle, right? We don't have enough good for goods for the demand uh, for those goods. As a result, the prices increase. So when you provide more cash to people, they go out and they try to buy stuff with that cash. And so targeting one sliver of the population with relief can be very effective without driving significant inflation because that group gets to uh, you know go out and spend that money. It uh, helps relieve believe them but it doesn't necessarily mean that the overall amount of money versus the overall total value of goods is out of whack yeah which leads us to the second problem she didn't just cut taxes for the poorest people she ran on cutting taxes across the board including the most wealthy the highest tax brackets corporations you name the group she wanted to cut taxes for them and announced a plan to do this yeah also, on top of that, the tax cuts in some ways for the uh, lower income people is actually kind of insidious in a way that Trump, the Trump tax cuts were mm. because they came on top 
of some uh, tax benefit freezes. Hmm. And because of that, the Institute for Financial Studies in the UK is predicting that for every $1 given to households through the headline tax cuts by 2025 and 2026, Two dollars will be taken hmm. because of those tax freezes. So it is an actual redistribution of wealth, which will end with people in the lower income tax bracket of the UK actually paying basically double while the people at the top are saving significantly more. So hmm. the biggest cut came from the the top tax bracket, which in Britain would be people making at least... 150,000 pounds. All right. Now, let's get even more in depth to that. Um, according to an analysis by The Guardian, more than two thirds of the total tax savings will go to people who have an annual income of over 500,000 pounds, hmm. which is just the top one tenth of 1% <laughs> of adults. Hmm. And on top of that, on top of that, there will be a $1 billion windfall to Britain's richest 2,500 individuals. Jesus fucking Which Christ. is an average of 400,000 pounds each. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so you might be wondering. <laughs> so why did this fail? Surely. <laughs> why was this a colossal fucking failure? <laughs> well, you might, yeah, you might wonder, like, surely, like, come on. No one can be this fucking dumb. No one can can remove 45 billion pounds of revenue from the budget without any corresponding cuts in spending to offset that and give it to the richest people and think that's going to fucking work. <laughs> Except for the fact that that's exactly what trickle-down economics does. Yeah. And the conservative party, at least the main people that elected trusts, believe in trickle-down economics, right? Yeah. If you take them at their word and you believe that they're not just heinous, like, verging on criminals, they really do believe that the best way to get the econ an economy in a slump to grow is to give the money to wealthy people. And even without tackling that idea right now, this would still be the worst possible fucking way to yeah. try to fix the problems that are facing Britain, right? Yeah. As we just talked about, right? Injecting cash into an economy facing inflation driven by the supply side doesn't work, right? And it would not be a realistic path to growth. And like growth is not the way out of this particular inflation, right? Growth takes time, right? You can't just buy your way to growth. Uh, in order to benefit inflation right away. Like the way that growth happens and then helps damp down inflation, right? At least when it's driven by the supply side is people build factories, people build production capacity, people build supply chains. Like they make investments, right? Which which can be benefited by, you know, cash by reducing, by like lower interest rates and stuff like that. They make investments that can increase the amount of goods available in your economy. But that doesn't fucking happen overnight. What does happen overnight is putting like tons and tons of money into people's pockets. And so what happens when you don't have any growth, 
right? Because it doesn't happen overnight. But you do have 45 billion pounds a year or 45 billion pounds in like like cash outflow. You just vaporize that 45 billion pounds because you don't have a larger economy against which the value is measured. So targeted relief can be helpful and growth can be stimulated by the right market conditions combined with like good fiscal and monetary policy. But neither of those things are at play here. Like, and so you might say, like, okay, it's only been 45 days. Certainly, these policies didn't <laughs> go into effect and cause all this shit in 45 days. Except for the fact that financial markets understand basic economics, unlike Liz Truss. And so this caused uh, the UK bond rating to be reduced from AA3 stable to AA3 negative. Basically, in comparison, like the U.S. has a AAA stable rating. That's the highest possible rating. And so the U.K. is like fourth or fifth tier from the top and has been moved from a stable to a negative, negative growth, right? And as a result of just the announcement of these policies, the currency in the U.K. hit its lowest value relative to the dollar since the 1970s, which makes life more expensive, right? Because if you're in the U.K. and you have a pound... Now, it's just worth $1 instead of like $1.40 or $1.20 or whatever, whatever it was before. You can literally buy less goods. So it's exacerbating the, the problem of inflation even more. It also caused there to be market doubt about the ability of the UK to pay its debt, right? So if, if that's the case, their bond rating goes down and it increases the cost of borrowing for the government, which combines with the with the currency devaluation to make it way more expensive for the government to borrow. This also caused the UK pension fund, pensions backed by government bonds, right, paid for by government borrowing, to have a cash flow crisis because they can't borrow as easily. And overall national interest rates rose, increased cost of borrowing to everybody, driving up mortgage rates, right, which affect people in the UK immediately. Immediate, instantly, because typical mortgage rates in the UK, unlike the US, are short-term and variable rate, unlike the US where they're long-term and fixed rate. So as soon as the interest rates start to go up, people pay more for their cost of housing. So like just the announcement of these plans caused a financial crisis in the UK, affecting everyone, even before the taxes were like actually like even before the amount of cash was actually changing because like the financial actors in the market knew basic economics. So now it's time for one of our newest segments, a miscellaneous what the fuck. <laughs> so as a reminder, we do this segment when there are things that we want to talk about, we want to fucking make fun of that don't really fall into the category of asshattery they don't really fall into the category of someone um, making an argument that's self-defeating, but like they just deserve a place on yeah, the show. Exactly. Exactly. So our miscellaneous what the fuck this week is uh, a heckler at Yankee Stadium against our favorite senator, Ted Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> this could almost be a good actually. Yeah, well, I I considered that, and we we did we did actually we did talk a little bit about that, um, but like after we had done a bunch of good actuallys in which they were actually like really negative, mm. it was just like someone being bad, being someone mean bad to being, a bad person, yeah, <laughs> like, um, 
I think that this is more appropriate for a miscellaneous WTF. Uh, just like, okay, the reason why I want to talk about this is just the fucking rant of this this TikTok user against Ted Cruz, which, by the way, Ted Cruz, you went to New York. What the fuck did you expect? <laughs> yeah. They hate you in New York. Yeah. I mean, they hate you in most of the country, but especially in New York. <laughs> so he's just standing around watching a game and like waving at people. And there's this TikToker who just starts screaming. And I, want to, I just, I just want to read what he says. Uh, fuck you, you racist piece of shit. Fuck you. Fuck you, man. You suck. You fucking suck. You're a disgrace. You fucking suck. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Remember when Trump called your wife ugly? Remember that? Oh, man. Remember when Trump called your wife ugly and you nominated him? Fuck you, you fucking piece of that, shit. That moment makes me so sad. If like I didn't know how bad Ted Cruz was, I would be so sad by that. Because you can tell that's the moment when he like kind of starts to hear the heckler a little bit more yeah and like he gives him this look out of the corner of his eye like like i know i had to i i i sold I am, my soul. I am the weak one i sold it i have no you know it's just this like guilty like yeah <laughs> i mean so see sad. that's the big that's one of the big things like i never liked ted cruz yeah but that's the big thing that i just it boggles my mind yeah. That that like that anybody after seeing that, after seeing the way, and I know you hate this word, Michael, but after seeing the way that he cucked himself to Donald Trump after this shit, yeah. I mean, look, look, if it were just like if he if he just came out and said, listen, Donald Trump is the nominee, or you know, even when he when he became the president, like Donald Trump is the president, and I have policy agreements with him. And the places in which I have policy agreements with him, I will work with his administration, but fuck him. I will not campaign <laughs> for him. I will not defend his statements. I will not defend his actions. He's a piece of shit, and I hope that we don't nominate him again. But that's not what Ted Cruz did. He campaigned for him. All yeah. right? We've all seen that sad picture of Ted Cruz calling somebody for Donald Trump. Yeah. Like— We've all seen that shit. He's been a a sycophantic defender of Donald Trump. He he actually he he offered to defend Trump in a Supreme Court case to try to overturn the election. All right? He fucking did that. Yeah. All right? Ted Cruz did that. Yeah. Just the fact that you would you would cuck yourself. The fact that you would kiss the ass of the man that insulted your wife. Like, I just, I, I, I cannot get over that. I mean, I know that that's a super personal, I know that's like really personal and that's a deeply personal attack, but I just, I can't get over that. Yeah. All right. And the I thing agree. is he was actually, he was recently on the view and he was asked about that specific moment when, when Donald Trump said that. And he basically, he gave the defense that I said, where I was like, well, if it had just been, you know, to support the policies, he gave that as his defense. But the thing is he he didn't just support the policies. Yeah. All right. He supports the candidate. Absolutely. He supports the candidate. 
Yeah. He completely supported the candidate. He supported things that he didn't have to support if he only cared about policy. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't only care about policy. He cares about his political ambitions. He cares about his political stance, his, his, his political position in the party. He cares about being a leader in the party because this motherfucker wants to run for president again. And he knows that the only way he's going to get anywhere when running for president is if he kisses the ass of Donald Trump over and over again. And it doesn't matter that he said that, that your wife is ugly. It doesn't matter that he said that your father killed JFK. It doesn't matter. If, like at one point he accused you of being the fucking Zodiac killer or some <laughs> shit. And normally Ted Cruz disagrees with people that claim he's the Zodiac killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I just want to end with the, uh, the final statement that he said that the heckler said, he said, quote, you ugly piece of shit, go to hell, get the fuck out of New York. Mm. Amen, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and that was miscellaneous WTF. And for our last segment tonight, we're talking about something pretty con closely tied to ideas of like American exceptionalism. Yeah. And that is a, an interesting kind of phenomenon where we seem to think about the U.S. in a bubble. And yeah. when we think about other countries, you know, when we're not just talking about the U.S.'s activity in other countries, but really learning from other countries, we almost think like it's almost like a second thought, right? It's, it's this very kind of strange thing where we make all of the arguments about like a policy first. And it's not just us. It's like, it's like, you know, it's us, but it's also people on both sides of the aisle. When we argue for policies, we make all the arguments about their merits first. Yeah. Um, and only later do we get to like, oh yeah, and everybody else has figured this out. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like we, we, we defend like, no, no, really, this is possible. And we'll, and we'll talk for forever about how really it's possible. And then forget that like, yeah, obviously it's possible. Like every other developed nation does it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it's this weird phenomenon where like, it's so easy for us to just get so wrapped up in our own politics that we forget how much benefit we could have if we just looked a little bit beyond our borders. Yeah, exactly. And it, it sometimes feels like they purposely want you to think that we do occupy a different reality. Like mm -hmm. we, that, America is in a different reality than the rest of of the developed world mm -hmm. for a lot of these a lot of these policy issues. And like sometimes they they it's such a well-oiled machine that you almost start to doubt yourself. Like you almost <laughs> start to doubt your own eyes because when an issue like universal healthcare is not supported by either of the major parties. Yeah. Despite the fact that every single other developed country has some form of universal healthcare system when the idea of a single payer system is considered radical left within the democratic party and most of the establishment candidates were adamantly against it when 17 other countries have done it <laughs> the fact that the candidates kept talking about, oh, it's economics. You can't do it. It's economics. Yeah. You can't pay for it. You're not going to be able to pay for it. When, when, the fact, when the fact that all 17 of those countries that have a single-payer healthcare system pay less per capita 
than the United States does in healthcare. Mm-hmm. All right? We spend more per capita than any other country, any With other developed country. Health outcomes. And have worse health outcomes. All right? Yeah. In ter- than, than, than other developed countries. All right? We pay more to get less. Mm-hmm. And we pay more despite the fact that we don't even have universal health care. Yeah. <laughs> All right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's cost per capita, not cost per covered person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, and so but it's so interesting that the response to that, the response when Bernie makes that argument is often like, oh well, that's other countries, wouldn't work here. Yeah. Not ex- not always explicitly, but certainly like it's almost brushed off. Yeah. As if, well, there's just something different about the US. It's not what they yeah. it's not often it's not always what's said, but it's often what's implied. Yeah. There was one moment in one of the debates uh between Bernie and Biden in which, you know, Bernie made the did the general spiel of like we you know, every other major country has figured this out. They've guaranteed healthcare as a right. And Joe Biden was like, This is America though. Yeah. And Bernie's just like, yeah, well, I don't think we want to pay less. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, yeah is this your is, argument yes, that this America's is America. just Gra- worse? I'm glad that you know that. I'm glad that you understand what country you're in. Um, are you saying we want to pay less? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the thing. It's like not just healthcare. Like, yeah, it's not just you know, healthcare. We've talked about like harm reduction. You know, multiple other countries, like Portugal is a great example, uh, implement policies specifically to address the the deadly outcomes of, like, drug addiction using harm reduction efforts. And, like, one state has started a pilot program to try to do that, just New York, while we face an opiate, like, an opioid crisis in the United States that's killing record numbers of people. Our solution is, like, We'll make a documentary about big pharma, which is like yeah. good to notify people, but like we're not implementing like nationwide harm reduction, even though yeah. this is a policy that has been working in other countries for like two or three decades. Yeah. I mean, look at education. Mm-hmm. Plenty of other countries have <laughs> wait, they tuition... have education? Yeah, they have <laughs> education. <laughs> but like tuition free uh four year universities. Yeah. All right. Tuition free college. Germany has it. Most of the Scandinavian countries have it. And it's been affordable. It's been associated with increases in economic gains because it is an investment. Because if you have a workforce that is more skilled, that is more educated, and they're not held back by poverty, of course you're going to end up having a better economy. Yeah. Of course you're going to end up having a better overall a better overall structure um when we're talking about uh having a living wage uh, you look at the cost of a big mac in a country like australia that last i checked has like a 20 dollar minimum wage versus the cost of a big mac in the united states the argument's always well you know it's going to drive up prices it's the same it's it's like the same damn thing it's like mm-hmm. the same damn price yeah all right it's like republicans don't think that we have the opportunity to Google this shit and figure it out. <laughs> but that's that, that's the insidious part. We don't Google it as often as we should. Like that's the part that is like so weird about this. And it's like the most one of the most like successful if, if this was intentional, the most successful gaslighting of all time. Like the yeah. fact that the US 
has been largely convinced that we just don't have that much to learn, which is like crazy in a couple ways. One, we could literally model our policies after the policies of other countries, right? But two, these countries put out study after study of these, the economic impact. They put out like, we, like, if we just read all of the papers on education and the benefits of tuition-free college, like, we might be totally convinced. Yeah. But we just have this tendency, it seems, at least I've noticed, to just kind of like, that's like second-class evidence. It's like not really as convincing as if we'd done it in the United States. Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I've had this argument with people, and they've just been like, well, this is America, buddy. Exactly. And it's okay, so we should be, <laughs> let's, let's, let's tackle that a little bit. There are important ways in which the U.S. is different from most other countries. Yeah. One, we're bigger than most other countries. We yeah. More people, we got a larger economy. Right? Yeah. That makes implementing things more somewhat more challenging. Yeah. We also have a lot of open space. I yep. mean, we we have a lot of rural parts of our mm -hmm. country yep. in which not a lot of people live. Yeah. Um, which, you know, to Michael's point, that can also mean that sometimes it might be more difficult to get certain resources out to some communities versus other communities. Absolutely. Absolutely. At the same time, we've got the highest bond rating in the world. We can borrow for the cheapest amount of money, and we can borrow more than anyone else. We're, we're in some ways uniquely situated to deliver on some of these priorities, right? Yeah. And so, like, there are, there are pros and cons to each. Things like the, the size, things like, you know, not only our, our population size, our econo economy size, our, our geographic size, all of those are, like, very reasonable benefits or challenges to account for when you think about these policies. One, one way that we're importantly different, which is, I think, one of our most significant, is our um, dual federalist system of government, yeah. which makes implementing certain policies nationwide much more difficult. Things like the fact that Congress can pass bills to incentivize things like police behavior, but they can't pass laws to say that our police that our police stations, you know, need to take X tactic or Y or do Y tactic. They can make things illegal. They can reduce protections for, you know, for police when, when doing violence, but they are somewhat limited in the things that we can do at the national scale. Yeah. And in that way, you know, it's, it's a, it's a more complex system for implementing nationwide policies, but we found a lot of success when the federal government implements like model policies that states can adopt when they incentivize with, like federal dollars to implement things. Um, and we have a lot of federal, like successful federal programs. And again, all of these things are like moderate complications. They're like yeah. barely blips compared to the complexity of implementing these policies that have already been implemented and we could model off of. If we yeah. just would learn the lesson instead of believing that in the US, uh, it's just not possible. Yeah. And also I just... It boggles my mind that anybody would use the American exceptionalism argument <laughs> to argue for why better things aren't possible. Mm -hmm. Because, look, if I were an American exceptionalist, I would want shit to be the best they possibly could be. Mm -hmm. All right? Yeah, like, we want to be I, like Japan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would say, wait, United States... 
is the only country that doesn't have universal health care? Not on my fucking watch. This is America. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is America. We can do that shit. We yeah. can't let these, you know, pansy ass fucking Europeans <laughs> beat us in this. You know, this is America. Wait, Jesus. you mean to tell me that that Europe, that other European countries that like scan a bunch of Scandinavian countries, they offer college education to like all of their people. And we don't do that shit. Well, we got to fix that shit. We, we can't let the fucking finish beat us. I'm not going to let the finish beat us. All right. Wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me that Australia has a $21 minimum wage? God damn it. Not on my watch. 22 I bucks. I ain't going to be beaten by those goddamn Aussies. All right. We got to raise our minimum wage. We got to make sure that we're fighting against poverty. Wait a minute. We have the we have the highest childhood poverty rate of any other developed country. No, no, no. You you cannot tell me that the fucking French are beating us in this. All right. I am not going to be beaten by the fucking French. This is the all right. This is rant. America. That's the best rant I've ever heard. The fact that you could literally go America first. We have to institute national like like free universal health care. We need to put in place free college tuition, raise the minimum wage. It was America first. The fact that that works yeah. <laughs> makes it just so clear that like yeah, that American exceptionalism belief makes us feel like we're exempt from comparison. As opposed to believing that, like, we actually need to be exceptional. Yeah. Nationalism is believing that your country is superior, regardless of how much it's earned it. Patriotism is loving your country. And true love for your country is wanting your country to be the best. And now we'll end our show as we usually do with our highlights. So, Nathan, what's your highlight this week? My highlight this week is that it was much better than last week. Oh, that's good. In a lot of different ways. I mean, it was it was work that felt more achievable. Um, and also, it's going to end with uh, my, my mother, my aunt, and my uncle coming to my house tomorrow for pumpkin carving. Awesome. And I haven't seen my aunt and uncle in a while, and I'm really fo- looking forward to seeing them. And we're, we're going to have a lot of fun. Uh, Jess is going to make uh, biscuits and sausage gravy, um, and she makes them so well. They're so delicious. Uh, and we're just going to we're just gonna have some, some Halloween uh, festivities, Man. and I'm really looking forward to that. That sounds awesome. I bet I would love Jess's biscuits. Oh, I'm sure you would. <laughs> I'm sure you would. Uh, what about you, Michael? What's what? What are your highlights? Uh, um, I, my highlight, I think, is like perspective. I, I'm hanging out with some friends this weekend for Halloween, and we've got fun plans. It's gonna be a good time. Maybe get some DJing in. Um, so yeah, I think it's gonna be a really good time, and it's gonna be fun to hang out with them. And uh, and I got my COVID booster, so no nice. fucking worries. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go. And now we'll thank the amazing people that make the show possible. So first up, first and foremost, we have to thank Kayla Fanoff, our amazing editor, for all mm. the great work that she does. And we also have to thank our great patrons. So thank you to Jerry DeViller, Kyle Chaska, Fadeout Scoop, Taylor Bloom, and Tobias Janssen for making this show possible. And now, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. 